right. Good morning. Hey, I want to welcome you to week three of what we are calling our Made for This Journey. So all year long as a a church, we've been asking the question, God, show us what we are made for. We've been talking about especially our mission as God's people. Uh, What does he have for us? What does it mean to live our life um, on purpose for him? And so today we are actually going to look at the second of five biblical purposes that we see from Genesis uh, to Revelation, uh, five purposes that we have today. We're going to look at the second one of those, which is fellowship. So last week we talked about worship and that we were made by God uh, to receive God's love and also made by God to return that love to him. We call that worship. One of the outpourings of a relationship with God is the fellowship and the love that we have for one another. In fact, uh, what I want to talk today, uh, what I want to talk about today is the spiritual relationships, because we all know that we're made for relationships, but specifically we are made for spiritual relationships inside what we call the church family. So the, the, the message this morning is called, We Are Made for God's Family. And I hope you brought a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. You can grab that. Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in as well, and we are going to jump in um, to this message. But as we do, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word church? When someone says to you church, or you think about church, what's that first thing that comes to your mind? Now, for many of us, especially because you're here, um, hopefully you think of something positive and, and kind of have warm feelings, sort of like the video we watch there, right? The music is upbeat and everybody's smiling and loving one another. And for you, when you think of church, that's um, what you think of. Others of you maybe are a little more skeptical. Maybe you've had some, some, some bad experiences or something like that. So you're a little more cautious when you think about church. Others of you, um, Maybe when you think of church, you think of just the church building or the worship service. Like today, I came uh, to church. Maybe for you, you think, you know, church is something I know I should do. It's it's good for me. And um, it's kind of like eating my vegetables. It's, you know, something I should do. Or maybe you want your kids to be here. Maybe you're here because your parents uh, drug you to be here. I don't know what it is that you think of when you think of the word church. But here's what I want to suggest to you today. I think that it's probably something dramatically different from what the people in the first century thought when the church was just getting started, right? So I shared some of this a few years ago, but the, the New Testament was written in, in, in Greek by the apostles and the, um, the uh, authors of the, the New Testament. And the Greek word that is translated into English as church is the word ekklesia, Ecclesia. Jesus is the first one that actually uses this word. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus introduces this concept of ecclesia. But then we see that it's used over a hundred times in almost every other New Testament book. They're writing about this ecclesia, what it means to be uh, this church that, that Jesus introduces. Ecclesia literally means called out. It's a compound word. It means that we are a called out movement of people. So it specifically refers to a group of people that are called called out to something significant. So ecclesia at first was not a religious word. Um, One of the places we see it described is soldiers, before they went out to battle, they would ecclesia, they would come together before they went out um, on their mission. Um, And to be sure, in the early days, when Jesus's followers heard the word ecclesia, I can guarantee they would not have thought of a building. 
they would not have thought of a worship service. What they would have thought of was a group of people with a common mission on kind of movement. And in those early days, the movement of God's people moved in really dramatic dramatic ways. In fact, that first ecclesia, if you think about it, it was just a very small kind of fringe group of, of Jewish people. I mean, originally it was not just the, the 12 disciples, but it was those disciples, those early followers of Christ who, you know, the last thing we see is they're, you know, hiding out in this room because they're, they're so afraid. But this little group of fringe uh, kind of Jewish believers, um, they have no buildings, as I said. They have no real influence in the culture. They have no political power. And yet we see that God works through this group of people in an incredible way. In fact, historians tell us that by the third century or by 300 um, AD, so a little after 250 years after Christ, um, that there were as many as 20 million Christian people spread around the Roman Empire. That's dramatic based on the number of people there were and the the, the rapid spread of uh, Christianity. So it spread quite rapidly in those first 200, 250 years. Then you get to 312 AD. And in 312 AD, history tells us that something very significant happens. You could debate whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, but in 312 AD, the emperor of the Roman Empire was a guy by the name of Constantine. And Constantine in 312 AD converts to Christianity, which is, of course, great. But what we see is that this little group of called-out people with this countercultural message that Jesus is the risen Lord, suddenly, instead, it becomes the accepted religion across the Roman Empire. In fact, the story goes that Constantine uh, painted crosses on uh, all of the weapons of his soldiers that, that they would send out because we see that the church was being melded into the power of the day. Something that happened under Constantine and those that came after him was they also began to see the establishment of different Christian shrines. So the first time there were dedicated buildings to Christian things. And they took some of the Roman religious buildings and they turned them into Christian buildings. And these were called basilicas. Basilicas is the Latin word that that would later be translated as church. And a basilica was really about a royal house. So it was less about a movement of people and it was more about a specific uh, place. And, And usually when it comes to a basilica, the bigger, the fancier, the wealthier, the better, right? And we still have some of those preserved from those early days of Christianity. Also around that time, Christianity continued to spread around the world into all sorts of places, including kind of north and east into the Germanic part of the world. Uh, The German people of that time had a word called kirka. I'm probably not saying that word right, but that's actually where the English word church comes from. And so they took that word ecclesia and they translated it as kirka. But again, what that literally meant, especially in those early days, was a Lord's house. And so like Basilica, the word that they used for church was less attached to a movement of people and was more attached to a specific place, right? And so what was originally meant to be a movement of God, people on mission, suddenly was becoming more about buildings and hierarchy and power and institutions, In fact, Pastor Andy Stanley writes this in his book, Deep and Wide. He says this, 
This shift in vocabulary that I just described there signaled a dramatic shift in emphasis and direction for the church. You see, the church was no longer a grassroots movement built upon the simple understanding of who Jesus is. The church became synonymous with a location. This created a new and unexpected dynamic where whoever controlled the building now controlled the church. Worse yet, In the fourth century and beyond, whoever controlled the building controlled the scriptures. And by the Middle Ages in Europe, the Bible was literally chained to the pulpit. This led to an even greater tragedy. Those who controlled the church property and the scripture eventually controlled the people and ultimately the government. And then he says this, what began as a movement dedicated to carrying the truth of Jesus Christ to every corner of the world had become an insider-focused, hierarchical, ritual institution that bore little resemblance to its origin. And so that shift away from what Jesus' original design was eventually also led to all sorts of, you know, unimaginable, unimaginable atrocities committed throughout church history. So think of things like religious crusades or institutional slavery or even some of the scandals and abuses and corruptions that we see today in our modern church and moral failures and things that we see far too often. Well, fortunately, when Jesus first used that word in Matthew chapter 16, ecclesia, this is what he said about it. He said, I will be the one that will build my ecclesia. He said, I will build my church. And then he says this, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Among other things, what that means is no matter matter how bad things get, No matter how crazy things are, no matter what attacks the church faces, there will always be a remnant of God's people who understand that we are a people on mission, that we are a people that are a movement called out to love and to serve and to make Christ known. And so this morning, what I want us to do here on week three of our Made for This Journey is I want to go back to those early days when the apostles actually spent a great deal of time and energy to explain to those early Christians what it meant to be a part of Jesus's church. Because they knew, even from the Old Testament, that we are relational people, right? We are not made to go through life alone. We are made for relationship. And we are made specifically for the spiritual relationships that come with being a part of God's family. And so the Bible from beginning to end is full of all kinds of instructions on, you know, what it means to be in a relationship and and those kind of things. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to zero in on one specific uh, letter that Paul writes to a church. I'm talking about the church of Ephesus. Because as I said, Paul and the other apostles go to great lengths to, to show the people what ecclesia is all about. And in the book of Ephesians, one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter is so that the people there in that city would understand what it means to be the people of God. And in the first three chapters, or actually in the first four chapters, he gives us three descriptions, three metaphors for the church. He says that the church is like one of these things. And so what I want us to do, our outline is going to be super simple. I want us to look at each one of those metaphors, see what it means for us today as we dig into this is what Paul describes to the Ephesians when he says, you guys, this is what an ecclesia is. 
This is what it means to be a church. And so the first one is this. He argues that real fellowship, real community that we are designed for begins by being adopted into God's family. It begins when we are adopted into God's family. And the metaphor that he uses really throughout Ephesians, but especially in Ephesians 1, is the church is a family. We are meant to be a family. Now, Everybody, all people around the world, God created them. God loves all people, um, no matter what. But the designation as God's children or the designation of God's family is specifically tied to those who have placed their trust in Christ, who are born again into that family. So we're talking specifically about the followers of Christ who are a family. And it begins when we're adopted into it. So the first verse that I want us to see is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We actually looked at this verse last week when we talked about God's love for us, but here's one of the implications of God's love. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5 says this. It says, he chose us, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. We were adopted into a relationship, a family relationship, specifically sonship or daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So this is so important because we looked at this verse last week when we talked about the love of God, but the result of that love, the result of the love that God has for us is he adopts us into his family. You see, friends, we are not meant to drift through life alone and disconnected. Our identity is as a member of the royal family. In fact, one of the things that I, as I think about this church, one of my things that I love about this church is how many families have opened up their hearts and opened up their, their home to adopt children in. Children from all sorts of different backgrounds and, and places have been adopted in to be, become a part of the family. And when those families open up their home and they, they adopt those family in, it comes with all of the rights and all of the responsibilities and all of the privilege of being a part of, of that family. Now you're one of us. And that's how God sees us and brings us in. All of the rights, all of the blessings, all of the responsibilities of being a part of God's family come to us when we are adopted in. And Paul just keeps telling us this. In verses 7 and 8, he specifically says, so God's riches, which God's riches are a lot, he lavishes those on his children. Those that, those that are his kids, he lavishes those gifts. All the way down in verse 22, it says that, that Jesus is going to be the head of our family, right? He's the one who is, who is over all things. He's appointed to be the head over the church. So in other words, whenever you get in that argument, my dad is stronger than your dad, you can just say, well, my dad walks on water. How about your dad? Um, so Jesus is the, the head of this family. And so in Ephesians 1, he begins with this idea that the ecclesia is a family, and there are definite benefits to it. In fact, one of the number one benefits is look around the room. Look at all the brothers and sisters, older and younger and aunties and uncles that you have as a part of God's family. Now, we may look different. We may have different experiences. We have different stories. But you know what we have is the same spiritual DNA, right? We are filled with God's Spirit. And so, 
the spiritual DNA that we have is the same. In fact, I was reading in today's reading um, from the What on Earth Am I Here For book. I hope you're uh, keeping up on the daily readings. If not and you've fallen behind, that's okay. Just jump back in again. But uh, today is day 15, and this is what it says about the benefits of being in God's family. It says, the moment that you were spiritually born into God's family, you were given some astonishing birthday, birthday gifts. The family name, the family likeness, family privileges, family family intimate access, and family inheritance. And it says this, the Bible says in Galatians 4, 7, since you are his child, everything he has belongs to you. That's how God sees you. He's like a father who wants to give you the blessings that he has. But here's the deal. As with any healthy family, while there are blessings, there are also responsibilities, right? For a, a healthy, for a family to be healthy, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by everybody playing their part, by, by the work and the sacrifice that it takes to keep relationships strong and growing. And because the relationships in the church family, when they are good, they are so good. And I hope that you're experiencing some of that. Jesus actually says, and I think it was kind of risky on his part, but he didn't ask me. He said, The way I'm going to let the world know who I am is by the way my disciples love one another. This is my strategy. I'm going to to build my church, and and the world will know that you are my followers by the way that you love one another. It's that big of a deal, the way that we love each other. And so when those relationships inside the church are good as they're designed to be, it's so good. And that's what we are made for. And yet the reality is, just as in family, sometimes relationships are hard. And just as it can be good, sometimes when it is bad, it can be so bad. What if there are problems in the church? What if there are problems in the church family? In fact, I'm kind of hesitant to ask you to raise your hands because I'm just afraid to see the number of people that would say this. But I wonder how many of you would say, just by show of hands, that in your life you've experienced some sort of conflict in the church. Maybe you were either part of it or you witnessed it or you were in a church. How many of you have experienced some sort of conflict in the church? Most of you, if you've been around long enough, would raise your hand that you've been a part of it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this because I just don't want it to be discouraging. Um, But I wonder how many of you would say, I've actually have experienced church hurt in my life. There's something that's happened, something I was a part of, something I witnessed that has caused some sort of, of hurt in my life. Because the truth is, for whatever reason, and there's a number of them, church hurt is like one of the worst hurts you can, can get. I think the reason is, is because we hear sermons like this and we know that the church is supposed to be different and we know that God's people are supposed to be different. And so we have high expectations on what those relationships should be like. And yet then, when the, those, expectations, those, those relationships don't meet our expectations, it hurts. Or someone that we put in a position of spiritual authority or to even represent God to us lets us down or hurts us, it hurts all the more. In fact, I don't know if you know this, I hope you don't, um, but unfortunately this topic of church hurt has become a, a really popular topic in like blogs and podcasts and social media. Um, church hurt can range from everything from very destructive things like abuse or molest or corruption, those sort of things, um, but it also can just be harmful or manipulative words or actions from a church leader. Maybe you've been around someone who, who behaved a certain way, someone you put some spirit 
spiritual authority in, and they behave a certain way when everybody is around and looking, but then you see them when nobody else is around, and you think, hey, they're acting completely different. In fact, I asked you you earlier, what do you think of when you hear the word church? And it breaks my heart to say that more and more, especially young people, if they were asked that question, would say, I think of hypocrites or corruption or abuse or hate. Now, while as a Christian and as a leader in a Christian church, everything within me just bristles when I hear that and I see all that this, this discussion. And the reality is there are a lot of angry and um, mean-spirited, unfair criticism of the, the church that is out there. You don't need to believe everything that you, you hear. People will love to throw stones at Christians and, and the Christian church. So, you know, we need to be aware of that. But we also need to be honest, and the reality is, is that some of that criticism are things that, if they're not deserved, they're at least things that we need to, with a humble heart, take a look at those things and say, what can we learn about them with an open mind and a humble heart? So I want to kind of just just delve into this for just a a few minutes, and then we're going to get back to Ephesians. Um, But I want to talk for just a minute on something we could spend a whole church, a whole sermon on, and that is this idea of church hurt. I want to make just a few kind of broad statements on the topic. As I'm talking about these things, I'm not talking so much about maybe there's abuse or some of those kind of things. I'm talking more about just kind of interpersonal um, conflicts where um, I've been hurt by someone that I've trusted to represent Jesus. So a couple comments on that. The first one I want to make is specifically to church leaders. And so myself included, but if you're in a position of of some sort of spiritual leadership, whether it's an official position or you're just kind of the the more mature Christian that people look to, I want to make uh, just a comment to you first of all. Um, And it's this. Church leaders, we have to learn to let our words and our actions bring grace and healing, not shame and harm. And here's what I mean by that. So I want to be very clear about this. The gospel message, what is ultimately good news, the gospel message will at times be offensive because the good news begins with recognizing that there is bad news. And sometimes that's offensive. When someone tells you that there's things in your life that are not God's best for you, there's sinful things that, you know, you should turn from and go a different direction— people get offended by that, right? And so the gospel message, Jesus calling us to something higher, something we know is better, but at first, sometimes it feels kind of harsh and and even offensive to us. But while the gospel message will at times feel like that, as leaders, we can't be the ones that are offensive, right? We can let the truth do the truth's work, but it's not our job to be offensive. In fact, one of the things that just blows me away, I've shared this before, is the way that Jesus, who never compromised, who never watered things down, who never turned a blind eye to sin, was so attractive to sinful people. They just kept coming to him. And I've thought tons about why is that? And I think one of the reasons is, is that people instinctively knew that he had their best for them. He, he, he wanted what was best. And so he was going to call them to hard things but he had their best in mind. Sometimes Jesus would even call people to hard things and they would reject it and they would say, nope, it's too much and and they would not follow. And so that that happens. But we see that, 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 that sinful people were drawn to Jesus. And yet at the same time, while Jesus is known as a friend of sinners, this is what he says to, to, to people in spiritual leadership. It's kind of harsh. He says, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean, which is a pretty horrible image, than for you to cause one of my little children to stumble. 
It's that big of a deal, the way the family relates to one another. And so as church leaders, if you're in a position of of authority or leadership or or you're kind of that mature Christian, we just need to think through. I'm not saying the gospel will not be offensive, but we should not be offensive pushing people away. We want to be people that are known for speaking words of life and love and hope and then letting God's truth work. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say, first of all, to to kind of church leaders, myself included. First and foremost, I I hear that message to myself. Let me also just make a couple statements to those of you who maybe have experienced hurt. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about those those big things as much as kind of interpersonal problems that have led to um, just some of that uh, uh, harm that I feel. And so the first thing that I would say to you is, number one, is if you've experienced some church hurt, seek first to understand And I would say this to anybody who's having any sort of conflict with anybody. Don't let your first instinct be to take things personally and to be offended, which is the way so much of our culture is going these days, right? Our culture has a kind of a real uh, uh, kind of empowerment to allow ourselves um, to be be offended. And so as followers of Christ, we don't want to to let ourselves first be offended. We want to seek to, to understand Um, and understand where people are coming from. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, which is a great verse, says this. It says, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Wow. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so we must forgive others. So when I say seek first to understand, what I mean is just ask yourself, is this hurt that I'm feeling, is there something that I can understand from the other person that would, would help me recognize it? Is there some misunderstanding? Is there something that I could learn from it? You know, as I was thinking a little bit about this, I've, I've been a pastor here almost 30 years at First Baptist, and I hate to say this, but the reality is over those years, there have been people that have been hurt under my ministry. Things that I've said that didn't come out right, or someone says, you know, you walked by and didn't say hello, or you didn't pay attention, or your words were, you know, hurtful or, or whatever it would be. And, and that, that breaks my heart. But here's the truth. When someone comes to me with that and says, hey, this is how I felt, you know what happens? Is it gives us an opportunity to repair that relationship. And maybe it was a, you know, a, a mistake on my part and I need to repent and turn from that. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. I don't know. But the reality is, is when the family can deal with our problems together, healing can come. Because Jesus, it's just fascinating to me. Jesus says, if you've been offended by someone, that you're supposed to go to them and try to make it right. But he also says, if you're the one that offended someone else, you go to them and make it right. So you're like, which one is it, Jesus? Is it the one who's offended or the one who who was offended? And Jesus says, both. It doesn't matter. If there's tension in my family, I want you to go and I want you to work those things out. So my challenge is to seek first to understand. A second thing, if you've experienced especially some significant church hurt, uh, my encouragement to you would be is to seek help and counseling as needed. If it's something that has got you weighted down and it has blocked you in in your life in, in some significant way, don't let that just linger. Find a trusted person that you can talk to. Even go see a counselor or a therapist. Come talk to one of the pastors. We would love to talk with you about that. Our church has this great lay counseling program where we've got a number of mature Christians who've been 
been trained in, in some counseling things, and you can call the number that's in your uh, notes and up on the screen there, make an appointment to talk through, whether it's this or, or anything else. Um, but rather than let those things linger, um, seek uh, help and counseling as needed. And then the third thing I would just suggest is this, is don't let the sins of another Christian keep you from Jesus and his family. If you've been hurt, my heart breaks for that, and I'm so sorry for that. But the truth is, the church is made up of imperfect people, sinful people, just like you are sinful, and just like you are imperfect. We're going to be hurt by people, and sometimes we're going to hurt people back. It's not good, but that's why we have Jesus as the head over our our church, so that he can transform us, so that he can help us, because we're all in process, right? So if I get hurt by someone and I just choose to check out, I've not hurt them, I've hurt myself. In fact, think of those early disciples. If, if they would have said, you know what, every time I see someone blow it, who's a follower of Christ, I'm going to just kind of leave and, and, and leave the faith. Those original disciples, they would have looked at Judas, right? He was in charge of the, the, the money for the group. And he, he was corrupt with the money. He turned their back on their leader, Jesus. He was a, a, a big mess in the whole thing. If you were to say, man, that's one of Jesus's 12 disciples and he behaves like that? If that's the kind of people that Jesus has around him, I'm out of here, right? But they didn't do that. They recognized that, that, that they were people like he was someone. And so my challenge to you is if you've been hurt, it's not to diminish that in any way, but my, 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 my pleading to you is to not let that chase you away from Jesus and to not let it chase you away from his family. You see, the church is, uh, this church right here, and, and no church is perfect, but you know what we are? We're family, and family, when stuff is hard, works things out and we stick together. And it means even when we get hurt, we deal with it. Now, I was thinking about this. Um, now I'm a parent of, of adult kids now. Uh, it's kind of a different thing. And, and as a parent of adult kids, I have three kids. There is nothing that brings me more joy and makes me more happy than the seeing my adult children loving and getting along with one another. In fact, it's just, I love it to see them having fun or even if there's a conflict, working things out. Um, so like in our, in our family, there's the three kids and then Janie and I, and we've got a, a group text, right? So it's called the barnyard because we're the Barneses. And so we can text each other in the barnyard. I know. Um, it's our thing. So we have that, that the, the five of us have the barnyard, and, and that's great. But then my three kids, they actually have their own text group, no parents allowed either, right? It's like, yeah. Um, and rather than be offended by that, I love it. I know they're probably laughing and making fun of their dad for all the things that he's done to embarrass them, but I don't care because I love it when my kids are getting along and having fun together and working things out. It brings me so much joy. And I wouldn't say it like this, but for this point, it brings me glory when my kids are doing that. And that's how God sees us. When as a father, he looks down and he says, yes, look at him get along. Look at him work through hard things. It brings him joy and it brings him glory. You see, we are made for relationships, but not just any kind of relationships, the spiritual relationships of being in a church family. And so that all begins with this idea that we are adopted into God's family. Second thing, and we're going to go quite a bit quicker from here on out, um, because we're looking at these metaphors in Ephesians. The first one is you're a family. The second thing we see is that this real fellowship, this ecclesia, is going to grow best when there is diversity and unity. 
diversity and unity. And the metaphor, the word picture he's going to give us is that of a temple. So one of the main reasons that Paul actually wrote Ephesians to begin with was to help the different groups inside the church to get along. Because namely, there were Jewish Christians who had a certain background and a certain way that they did things. And then also in the church, there were Gentile Christians, and they had a different way that they did things. And outside of these church, outside of the church walls between Jews and Gentiles and different uh, groups, there was suspicion and disunity. There was even hatred among these groups. But Paul writes to say, once you were in Christ, that goes away. And you were diverse when you came, but in Christ, you are unified. Why do I say that? Look at verse 14, Ephesians 2, 14. This is what he says. He says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Doesn't that sound good? We have a Savior who has destroyed the wall, the barrier of hostility. Down in verse 18, he says this, For through him we both, so Jews and Gentiles, but wherever you're from, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And so it's amazing that through Jesus Christ, people from different backgrounds and, and stories, he throws this banner over them that they are, uh, they are this, this church, this ecclesia, and, and we're like a, a building that's joined together. This is the metaphor for the temple. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he says this, in him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So sometimes you'll hear people talk and they'll say, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because God lives in me. My body's a temple, those kind of things. And that's true. But really, when you see that the New Testament temple talked about, it's not an individual. It's more of a corporate thing. It's that we are the, the temple together. Now, I said earlier that ecclesia was not about a, a physical building. And, and here Paul's not talking about a physical building as much as he's talking about a spiritual one. And this is so significant because what was the temple in the Old Testament meant to do? It was meant to show God's glory to the people around them. It was the place that God's spirit lived. In fact, this is just awesome. In 2 Chronicles, when they, Solomon and his people first build the temple, there's this dedication of the temple. And what happens? It's like fire comes down from, sky, from the sky and the fire comes down and it goes into the temple and it fills the temple with God's presence. And people are like, that's amazing. And when God starts his church, the church family, in Acts chapter 2, these people who had been hiding out, afraid in this room, unsure, what happens? Fire comes down from the sky and fills not a building, but fills the people with God's spirit. And he says, now my building is not a, uh, uh, my temple is not a building, my temple is you. And you're the people that are going to show, show the world what my glory is like and what it means to have my presence and to be different. And that's what it means to be a part of the ecclesia. You see, there's mission to it. It's more than just what I get, but it's how do I become a part of, of all that God has for us. So though I'm diverse in backgrounds and personality, we come together and we build this building for God. Third thing we see. So he's talked about us being a family. He's talked about us being a temple. The third thing he gives, the metaphor is actually in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about real fellowship. This ecclesia is going to flourish when every part does 
their part. And here the metaphor that he uses is that of the body. He calls us the body of Christ. So let me just read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So it's kind of a long passage here, but, but look at the, the, the metaphor and see if you can see what Jesus is saying or what Paul is saying about us as the body of Christ. He says, so, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So all different people with different kind of gifts. He said he gave them to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you see that? Spiritual maturity doesn't happen alone. It happens inside the body. That's how we come to the full measure of maturity. In the same way, he says, then you're going to no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul says there's going to be all kind of deceitful scheming and and people are going to be blown here and there by the the winds and the the philosophies of of the world. He says, you know where you're safe from that? In the church where we are built up together. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so we know that for a body to be healthy, that every part has to be working in unity, right? The ear can't be... complaining about the, the, the nose and the hand can't be jealous of the foot. It just doesn't work that way. Each of us has our part to play and we are meant to play that part. Just a few weeks from now, we're going to talk about the, the, the purpose and the, that we are made for, for ministry and service. And so we're going to look at, at specifically um, what that means. But each part of the body has to be doing its part. That's how we grow. That's how the body grows. And so those are the three metaphors, a family, a temple, a body. And I want to give you one more as we close this morning, and it's kind of a modern one. Paul wouldn't have used this, but it makes a little sense to me. And I want to suggest that you are a Lego. You are a Lego. I don't know if you can see this right here, but I'm holding in my hand here this little um, Lego, and it's a yellow one. And um, I actually even have like a little uh, bag of, of these Lego pieces. And on their own, kind of in a little bag, they are not that impressive, right? When they get together, they are impressive. Thanks, Will. Well, there's 3,000 plus pieces in this. He's actually not even showing you the whole thing. It like spins and works together. I invited him to bring that up because I knew that, you know, it was so amazing what he put together. But here's the thing. If, if you just look at your life, you're like, look at me. I'm a yellow Lego and I'm awesome. I mean, my I got nice sharp edges and my corn, my, I'm real round and just right. And I feel like I'm the best Lego of them all. I'm just going to be over here by myself doing my little Lego thing. Are they doing what they are made for? Obviously not. You know where the glory comes. You know where the purpose comes from when they get put into what they are meant to do. And that's the same with us. Sure, we're going to experience some of God's blessing on our own, but we are made for God's family. We are made to be a part of a temple that's all built together and we are the body of Christ. And when we get that and when we live that out, you know what you're going to find? It's what you're made for. So God, I thank you so much 
for um, your word from the beginning to end teaches us how important it is to be in relationship with one another. And so, Father, I pray for myself and for each person here. I pray that we would be that family that we see described. Father, through the good times and the bad times, help us to be wise in how we can heal if there's healing that needs to take place, where we can talk things out, where there's things that need to be talked out. But Lord, I just pray that, that in this church and in your body around the world, Lord, that people would see the goodness and the power and the glory of God. I pray for each of us that you would give us the wisdom of where we could step into those relationships, how to grow in them, how to serve, and Lord, we would live for you. We thank you for your word and for your plan for our life to be loved and supported in this church family. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.